My name is James. If you're here for the very, very first time, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to open our Bibles together in just a little bit. It'll be on the screen as well. Uh, if you have the Version app, we put an event in there every week, uh, uh, most weeks, uh, so you can uh, go to the events section of that. Uh, down on the right-hand corner, there's a couple of churches in town that you can uh, uh, get their notes and stuff like that, or the scriptures that we'll be using are right there. And if you want to take notes on what, I'm, what we're going to talk about, uh, right there in the app. Uh, you're here at the Grove at kind of a, uh, a momentum-filled time for us. Uh, we are in conversations right now uh, with another church across town called Albany Evangelical. Uh, technically, they are our grandparent church. Uh, 60 years ago, uh, people from Albany Evangelical started South Albany Church, and 10 years ago, South Albany Church started the Grove. Uh, both of those had different circumstances, uh, but they are 60 years ago, uh, this, we have three churches from our denomination in Albany. We have 50 churches in our denomination in Oregon and Washington, three of them in Albany. And so I, I feel like we're kind of centered in Albany, like Albany is the hub of all the activity uh, that, that happens. Uh, <laughs> we're having conversations with Albany Evangelical Church about a possible church adoption, which would mean we would adopt their people into our church. They have a a space, uh, a facility uh, down behind King Cone, uh, if you know where that is. If you don't, it's behind the Linger Longer. Uh, <laughs> there's two kinds of people in town. <laughs> the, uh, there are two kinds of people in town. <laughs> um, but it's right down in that section of town, and uh, they're a church uh, that is uh, short on people, and uh, we're a church that's high on people, and so we thought maybe we'd have a conversation about it. We started talking last November, and next week they're actually holding a vote. And their vote, it will be a congregational vote uh, to actually be adopted into our church. Uh, we will then, depending on their vote, we go through a process of our own to kind of adopt them as members and those kinds of things and, and become uh, one larger family. If you've been here during the year, we've I've gone and visited them. Uh, we all can't go visit them. Their, their facility, is, we would have to, if we use their facility, we're going to have to go to two services. Uh, and so then we'll, uh, but they've came and visited us uh, one Sunday and we uh, had them here at our church and we've done a whole bunch of meetings between our leadership committees and those kinds of things. But then last week we kind of deviated from our, our series. I had this great series that we were doing talking about like it's a kind of a restatement of our, our priorities here at the Grove as far as living, loving, and leading. And we're going to get back to those in the next two weeks after this. We're going to talk about what it is to, uh, we're actually going to talk about what it is to love uh, in a biblical way in a non-biblical world. Uh, and then we're going to talk about what it is to be a leading church and the, uh, um, how that went for Jesus and how we should expect that to go for uh, uh, churches. Uh, but today and last week, we're talking about uh, prayer and fasting. Uh, prayer and fasting, if you're unfamiliar, uh, prayer is talking to God or listening to God or in being in conversation with God. And fasting is going without uh, like cons consumption uh, so that uh, you're able to, uh, it's actually a spiritual going without consumption, not like a diet. Uh, but it's much more like, uh, and usually it's food, but it can be all sorts of things that we consume, uh, where we go without in order to increase our sense of desperation and dependency on God. And so last week, we called our church through this 14 days of prayer and fasting, and people are praying every day. You can sign up for daily prayer prompts by text, and there are numbers in the program you got as you came in, and you'll get one of those every morning. 
And, uh, and then there are also, those things are being posted on social media, so you can see them there as well. And then people are fasting in order to remember those things. Because in this situation, we do what we can do, and then we just kind of sit back, and we have generally no effect on how this other church votes. Uh, but it affects us, if, if that makes sense. It's like being 17 when the election comes around. Uh, you're, you have no say. Or it's like being a Canadian that doesn't live in Canada. I have no vote. Canada has laws that if you don't live there, you don't get to vote. I'm, if you're new, I'm from there. Uh, and in the United States, they are willing to tax me without giving me a say in their government. So I, uh, I pay taxes, and I don't get to vote. So I complain a lot, and I'm the only one that gets to complain. Uh, the rest of you, if you didn't vote and, and you complain, I don't listen to that. Um, <laughs> but there is, uh, like, there, it, you're out there, and we're out there, and we don't necessarily have a say. And so we're going to talk about that in a kind of how we pray in those kinds of situations today. Uh, and we're going to walk through the Bible, and there's kind of a theme that I uh, find in the Bible uh, that I found interesting a few years ago, and I've been kind of jotting notes on it when it comes up, and now I'm going to preach on it, you know. So it's a couple years worth of work, and I'm hoping to get through it in 28 minutes and 33 seconds. So we'll see how that goes. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, this is how the Bible begins. If you've ever read the whole thing, this is how it starts. You might forget how it starts. But it says, in the beginning, God made, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So at the beginning of everything, God makes everything out of nothing. And there's other places in the Bible that talk about that. This is kind of the problem uh, with other creative initiatives or other creative theories as far as how things began. That having something made out of nothing is uh, scientifically uh, difficult. Uh, so there's nothing, and it's not that this, the something was very, very small, it's that there was actually technically nothing, and then God made everything using nothing to make the everything. But that everything is very early on described as being formless and empty and dark, not a place that you want to hang out, and the Spirit of God was there hovering over water. Because apparently there was water there at the beginning, and it was dark and formless, or maybe water was the way that we described, dark and formless and a void. And this understanding of water becomes like an understanding of that space. And when you read the scripture, the water is this space that is uncontrolled, uh, that is chaotic, uh, that is unsafe, that is mysterious, that is, it's your doom. The water is full of large sea monsters, and, and just, we don't know what's going on down there. We don't know what kind of danger lurks below where we can see. Uh, we don't have, I don't think, like a fear like this today. We figure, We've explored everything, like we know everything. Our culture is very, very different than the early cultures of the Bible. We know everything, and if we don't know everything, we can just find it out. But early cultures, there was no way to find it out. The deepest anyone had ever seen in the water was how deep you could swim. And so you don't know what goes beyond there. And in fact, you don't know what goes beyond the water that way either. 
And so there's this mystery around the water. And then the Bible makes everything. The water separated heavens, like the, the sky and the earth. And the, the ground comes up and separates the water into different places. And then uh, in Genesis chapter like 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, God decides to make it rain. And the water comes up from the deeps, uh, like from springs from within the earth. And the water comes down from the clouds. And God had been having a conversation with Noah and the very first like rainstorm that's in, recorded in the Bible is a Pacific Northwest style rainstorm, which is very unusual for where Noah was hanging out. And it fl- God floods the earth. And you can have debates over whether it's the whole earth or not the whole earth. That's, those are just fun. That's all that is. But what, what this is, is a, the first rainstorm or the first storm recorded in the Bible is survived by a guy who has conversations with God on a regular basis. You probably have friends who think they have conversations with God on a regular basis. Those are always the comic relief people in the movies, right? The Irish guy in Braveheart. You, you all brave, okay, you all need to watch Braveheart more. That's just like a, okay. <laughs> We're identifying some weaknesses, and there's one. Um, it's on TV like every Tuesday, all right? Just watch it. It's six hours long. <laughs> so, uh, but the, the Irish guy, the Irish guy in Braveheart has conversations with God and he sits there quietly because he's listening because God speaks to him, right? Because, uh, and anyway, this took, okay, so watch the movie more. But there's, Noah has conversations with God and then he gets in a large boat that he apparently made where there's no water and too large to just get to the water and then it floods and Noah's family survives in this, uh, in this flood or in this storm. Uh, then we have a guy named Jonah who's an Old Testament prophet. If you're unfamiliar with this story, Jonah was called by God uh, to go and speak to the people in Nineveh, except Jonah was uh, righteously racist against the people from Nineveh. He didn't like them, and he didn't want them to know who God was, and he didn't want them to repent because they could go to hell for all he cared. And so the story says uh, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah and go and do this. Then Jonah, (laughs) but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for another town called Tarshish, and he went all the way down to a town called Joppa, uh, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. Sorry, he went to Joppa so he could sail to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And the Bible says this, Then the Lord sent a great wind upon the sea, such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. So it's such a big storm that the ship is actually, they're afraid it's going to just come apart. And at other points in the Bible, it talks about they would take ropes under the boat and tie it together uh, so that because it was so rough, and the sailors were all afraid, and they each cried out to their own god, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Isn't that weird? <laughs> the guys on top are praying to their gods. They're uh, like all sorts of different gods that they had. They were throwing things off the boat. Jonah's downstairs, apparently in a hammock, swinging, you know, nice and relaxed. And the captain went down to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God, with a small g. Uh, Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. So the the ocean is presented, or the sea is presented as this place where the gods will show their displeasure, will show that they're not happy with how things are going, because the gods were something they didn't understand. The gods were sometimes happy with them and the crops grew, sometimes mad at them, and they got no rain and the crops didn't grow. But the gods, if you were on the water, would show they were mad at you by big storms. And so they would all pray to their god 
They would also throw everything into the ocean so they would float better, apparently. And then they would pray to the, all the different gods, hoping that one of those gods would be the one that could like, be appeased and not do the storm anymore, and we can live through this. And Jonah doesn't want to talk to his god because he's running away, so he goes to sleep instead. And then they wake him up and say, hey, if it's your god. It ends up they throw Jonah into the ocean and he gets swallowed by a, a whale. So that didn't go so well for him. <sighs> but they're all praying. They're trying to see if the gods can stop the ocean from being so dangerous. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he shipwrecked three different times. Acts 27, actually, has one of those stories where he tells them, hey, I think this is a bad idea. We shouldn't go out on the boat. And the captain says, ah, you don't know anything. Let's get in the boat. And then they go out in the boat, and Paul says, I kind of said we were going to die, uh, but now God has told me we're not going to die. Everyone, he, Paul actually does, it looks like communion with a bunch of heathens, which we never bring up when we're talking about the theology of communion, but it really looks like he does communion with a bunch of heathens. I'm just saying. Uh, Acts 27, if you want you know, to contest some things, if you're ever going through your ordination and it's not going well. Um, <laughs> but there is, if you're talking doctrine, uh, in Acts 27, it looks like he does communion with the people and says, hey, we're all going to live. And then they all live uh, through this shipwreck. It just happens over and over that the Bible shows water to be what people would see culturally as the displeasure of God, as chaos, as a place that's unsafe, that is doomed, that we don't want to be near. And then we get to the very end of the Bible. Three minutes, I just did the whole Bible. This is the book of Revelation. This is a picture of what heaven looks like. And once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. That means God. Uh, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. You should know this stuff so you know where you are after you die. <laughs> From the throne, it, it won't be hard to tell. It won't be hard to tell. Uh, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, storms, chaos, fear. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these were the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered in eyes in front and back. I just included that just to freak you out. This is mostly symbolic. It's apocalyptic literature in Revelation. It's mostly symbolic. When you get to heaven, there probably aren't physically 24 thrones around in a circle with creatures' eyeballs. Uh, it would be funny. Do they all blink at once? Or is it like a pop, 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 pop? <laughs> this is why I need to go to heaven. I have no questions about hell. No questions. I know what that's like. I have lots of questions about heaven. When you're there and you're standing before the throne of God, there's water, but the water is crystal clear and calm uh, like a sea of glass. Then in Revelation 20, 22, sorry, then the angel showed me the river, this is the new heaven and new earth, the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life, so apparently like over the river bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What's the river like? Clear as crystal. 
What the Bible's saying, using this water metaphor, is that there is chaos and there is danger and there is doom and there's things we don't understand, but what heaven is, heaven is clarity. It's a sea of glass. It's clear as crystal. It's a complete lack of fear and danger when it comes to water because you, you, there's no longer an unseen. There's no longer a, a danger that you can just have anxiety about whether it's there or not there. There's an elimination of, of, of chaos and a newfound clarity when we get to heaven. When you get to heaven, there is no place for a metaphor of chaos, of doom, of, of fear because of an anxiety-driven fear. When you get to heaven, there's clarity. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, when it says, may the kingdom may be on earth as it is in heaven, what we're trying to do is bring clarity to chaos. This is what Jesus does. Bring calmness to anxiety. This is what Jesus wants to do. So in the middle of the Bible, Jesus lives by a lake. They were kind of pompous about their lakes, and they called them seas, like the Sea of Galilee, right? It's a lake, all right? Like, it's tiny. Uh, but if you name things, you can name, like, if you go to the East Coast, they call these things mountains. <laughs> Dummies, right? But there's no, like, there's no snow on them. Anyways, Mark chapter 4, Jesus goes for a boat ride, and there's a storm. Uh, Jesus had been uh, teaching all day, uh, teaching large groups. The groups are so large that they would be all on the banks, and Jesus would get into a boat and go out of it because the sound would carry along the water and go up the, the banks and the hills that were next to uh, the water where, where he was teaching. And if you've ever taught, uh, this is what, like, there's a reason. The teaching profession gets two or three months off in the summer because it's exhausting, Right? All, I mean, your kid is probably energizing. Your kid's fantastic. Teaching your kid is a real treat, but it's the other ones. If you know teachers, they need the summer off, right? Uh, so Jesus teaches, and he teaches all day, and he's doing parables, which means he's giving examples of this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Trying to help people understand God is doing this thing among you, and you need to see it. And then, then that day when the evening came, Jesus, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So they're going to get in the boat and actually go across the water so that the crowd can't follow them. We end up finding out that the crowd went around the water. Uh, that's how small the lakes were, uh, the seas, goodness sakes. Then leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats with him. And a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the sides of the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion as water was crashing over the top and apparently landing on him. And the disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you even care if we drown? <laughs> and he got up. And he rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. The disciples were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? 
Even the wind and the waves obey him. Kind of a weird story, isn't it? The waves are crashing over the side. Jesus has a cushion. And I guess maybe they didn't have a lot of cushions because Jesus on a cushion sleeps so well that a boat going all over the place and water coming over and crashing on him, and he sleeps through it. There's some interesting things that I want to talk about, and we're going to talk about prayer because these guys talk to Jesus, and I think we should talk to Jesus, and that's what prayer is. Uh, But this is an incredible story, uh, and I don't want to take it to places that I don't think it goes, but I'm going to push a bit, and I want us to kind of live into this a little bit. Thinking through the concept of doom and chaos and, and just fear from anxiety in the waves and, if you see this story, calm waters with no wind. The first is that's interesting. <laughs> well, let me say this. The first is that we all have had the experience of being in situations and wondering if God is even paying attention. All of us. Some of us, our storms comparatively are bigger than other storms. That's just life. But all of us have been in a situation where we're wondering, is God even paying attention to what happens to me right now? Is God even noticing? Or is he, did God find a cushion and he's asleep? Because my life is all stormy and all chaos and the water's coming over the edge and the boat is sinking and I can't get the water out fast enough. And yet it seems like God is able to sleep right through it. Like God is totally chill with what's happening to me. It's unfair. It's not my fault. I don't like it. What happens in this story, though, before that storm, is that the disciples actually follow Jesus. At the beginning, uh, Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. And they say, okay. There's a difference, I think, between the people who are in boats without Jesus and people who are in boats with Jesus. Because some of us in our life We are going where we want to go. And then when it starts going bad, we start getting mad at Jesus for not paying attention. And Jesus is sitting over there saying, I'm in this boat over here and I really wanted you to get in this boat over here. And so we're mad at Jesus for things that are our own fault. And so this, what I'm going to teach about, I think applies when you're in the boat that Jesus said to get into. It doesn't apply as well to the boat that you're in of your own decisions and your own making and your own drive and your own decisions. If you're out there living on your own or you're not doing things God's way and you're surprised that things are going poorly, sometimes they're going poorly because you made choices that made things go poorly. And it doesn't mean that God's abandoning you. It means you're abandoning God. So there's a distinction there. So this doesn't apply one-to-one to both situations. But in this situation, you're following God, you're doing the things that God's leading you to do, and yet there's this storm. And Jesus is apparently asleep. But the disciples first are are following Jesus. They're not wondering, oh, why didn't we get in the boat with Jesus? Because there are other boats on the water right now. You see in the story, there are other boats with him. And so there are probably other boats where they're bailing out water, But in those boats, no one's mad at Jesus for sleeping. They're like, well, this was our decision. We went out here and and we decided to go across the water at night. That was kind of dumb. No one gets mad at Jesus. But the people who are in the boat with Jesus and Jesus is asleep, 
There's a lot of S's right there. Jesus is asleep. They're mad at Jesus. And you might not be comfortable with that concept. Like some of you might not be comfortable with being mad at Jesus. I'm mad at Jesus on a regular basis. And all the time, it's my fault, not his, right? But he's patient enough with me to live through that. Uh, it's much like a toddler is mad at his parents at nap time. Same relationship I have with Jesus. I'm the toddler. But Jesus is in this boat, and we see this incredible example of Jesus being exhausted, Jesus being human, and he falls asleep because it's night, it's evening, he's been teaching all day, he's exhausted from pouring himself out creatively, he gets in the boat, he starts going, and I bet he falls asleep before the storm, and he sleeps through the storm, his water is splashing on him, and he's so tired that water splashing on him doesn't wake him up. So there's a storm, and the disciples have to react to the storm, and their reaction is fear. We are going to sink. And so they go to their skills, and they start throwing things out, like throwing water out of the boat, trying to maneuver the boat in a way that will go into the waves so it doesn't splash as much. And where is Jesus? He's resting. He's asleep. Because as much as Jesus was human and exhausted, he was also divine, and he knew, tonight's not the night I die. He knew what he was here for. He didn't, Jesus did not come to earth to calm storms. He came to earth to teach people a new way to live, to heal people into a new way to live, and then to die for humanity and for their sin. And so Jesus on a boat was very, very calm. Jesus would be like, nah, don't die this way. It's good. I'm going to have a nap. Because as much as he's human and needs a nap, he's divine and understands what God has planned for his life. I don't know how he stays calm about that. Later on, when he's about to be crucified, Jesus is actually sweating during his prayer. They said his sweat's like drops of blood, like just big, like just intensity. So it's not like Jesus didn't feel. He did feel, just he also felt like resting. And then we go to find Jesus, like the disciples have to wake up Jesus, and where is Jesus? He's chilling out, because this is not going to kill us. It's kind of a weird encouragement. If you're in a situation, like if you, maybe you're in a situation right now, and there's chaos around you, and you're wondering, where is Jesus in this? He doesn't seem to be appearing. Maybe he's chilling out, because this isn't going to kill you. Like, we're going to be good. You're going to be all right. Uh, maybe Jesus wants to see how this goes wants to see what you do when the boat sinks. Are you a good swimmer? <laughs> but none of us actually, that's a metaphor, none of us actually like wanted to get in the boat and then get to the middle and swim the rest of the way. But Jesus apparently is cool with that because he knows, eh, this ain't going to kill you. Isn't that a terrible standard for Jesus? Like when you're praying, Jesus, I want this to go well for me. And Jesus is like, eh, it's not going to kill you. So like, come on, Jesus. <laughs> We could use a little bit of like a, like a step up in standards just as far as how this is going to go from not going to kill you to maybe we'll be somewhat enjoyable. That would be a, a low standard for life. So there's this change that happens though when they wait, go and wake up Jesus. He's asleep on the cushion. They say, Jesus, don't you even care if we drown? And Jesus wakes up, he gets up, and he tells the wind and the waves to stop. And they do. And then Jesus says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Sometimes when things aren't going well and we're in a storm, 
we start to think that maybe we don't have the skills. Like they just, these guys apparently didn't have enough boating skills. And so you know, a few of the disciples were like fishermen. Like it looks like around four or five, six of them maybe were fishermen, right? They're from around the water. They knew what they were doing. Some of them never went out on boats. So this whole scene is twice as hilarious if you think like there's like Matthew, who's a tax collector, who's over here, right? And like this guy who got his brother and like they're over here and they've never hung out on boats. And this is maybe their first storm. And it's awesome. Like they're over on the edge puking and the fishermen are trying to do things. And they're like, why don't you do something? And they're like, throw again, right? And it's just, it's very much, that's more like me on a boat. That's what I do. And so there's this whole scene that's happening and Jesus wakes up and he says, what's wrong with you guys? He never, he doesn't question their skills. He's like, don't you know how to pilot a boat for crying out loud? Why don't you put the guys in charge of, like the guys who are boating, who are good at boating, put them in charge. Let them pilot the boat. Let this go well because we have the skills to get across a small lake. Jesus doesn't question their skills. He questions their faith. And which, which hurts more? I don't mind if you question my skills. I'll admit it. The storm was more than I could handle with my skills or my experience or like the tools in my toolbox as far as leading and, and, and being able to get through or living and being able to get through a situation. I wasn't able to do it without help. Yet when Jesus goes at these guys, he says it wasn't a skill thing, it was a faith thing. Do you still have no faith? Your fear, your anxiety-driven fear, it doesn't come from a place of a lack of skill. It comes from a place of a lack of faith. Because Jesus does not say, why didn't you do better? Why didn't you perform better? Why weren't you a better person? Why didn't you make better decisions? Why didn't you live better? Jesus says, oh, we're in a storm. Why are you nervous? Do you have no faith? See, faith exists. Uh, faith exists at a point that's past our skills. It's past what we're able to do. That's where faith is. And for some of us, it's really difficult because we have so much skill and so That's really braggy, right? And so much resources. We live in a part of the world that is rich in skills and resources. We're able to do most of the things. We don't, I'm going to say this weird, we don't need Jesus to intervene because we got this. We're kind of doing God a favor, really. Like I'm sure God's dealing with wars and world hunger and, you know, whatever's going on over there somewhere because I'm, I'm, I got this on lock. Jesus actually isn't interested in that. He wants to live just past that. And he wants Christians to live just past that. And so many of us are just satisfied to live lives of skill. Maybe they're really excellent lives. But during those lives, Jesus can sleep in the front of the boat and be like, nah, I know nothing's going to happen here in your life, so I'm going to have a nap. <laughs> Theologically, this is really, really bad. Like, Jesus doesn't, nap, like, God doesn't have naps. <laughs> But some of your lives are so boring, it makes him wish he could. <laughs> That's a little bit offensive, isn't it? <laughs> some of your prayers are so boring that Jesus falls asleep during them. The ones that you fall asleep during? Yeah, Jesus too. <sighs> 
That's not theologically correct either. It's just sarcasm that might be true. But when you're living past your skills, there's fear there. There's fear. There's fear that it might not go well, but there's also fear that it will go well. Do you see what happened when, they, when Jesus calmed the water? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Like, uh, who are we in the boat with? Like, this guy actually is in charge of the weather around us? Oh, crap. There's a fear there. Let me, I'm going to tell you this, and this is probably more honest than I should, but I, uh, with this whole church adoption and merger process, oh, man, it makes me nervous. It makes me nervous partly that it won't work, right? And there's been meetings where we've been in where people are emotional and they're said mean things to us. Some of them that are like, uh, unfounded. Some of them are kind of like we wear as a badge of honor, right? Because we'll do anything short of sinning uh, to help people come to know Jesus, like anything, right? And uh, people that won't uh, really don't like it. And, and so when you get into these situations, it's all the time, right? This isn't new or something like that, but people love to criticize our church. Uh, people love to criticize... Okay, we should erase this from the recording. People love to criticize this church because we serve popcorn. Like as if the devil himself invented popcorn, right? And we give popcorn to your kids as they come in because we want your kids to have a positive experience at church so that as they get older, they go, oh, church, that's that thing I like, right? They give me popcorn. You can get popcorn anywhere you want, right? Like anywhere, like genuinely from your microwave, you can get popcorn. But your kids aren't getting up on Sunday morning saying, can I get popcorn here because I want it before they get here and they want their popcorn. So people love ripping on our church for popcorn. And I don't understand it. It's like other churches give kids like stale animal cookies, right? And the kids hate them, right? Like, you know, there's a giant jar and, and you're just like, here, kids, and you open it. And here, kids, have some, eat. like, it's terrible. No kids are going, eh. well, they are really, right? But it's because your lessons in Sunday school are so freaking boring, right? They're like, oh, a snack is the most exciting part of my day. And so people love getting on different things about different things and so we've been receiving this and so there, I've experienced a lot of anxiety because I feel like I'm defending us to people that we're not trying to reach if you have Christian friends there's actually like uh, like rumors going through Christian world in our town about our church and their church and people calling me and some of them are really positive I had this like 75 year old man that called me and he's like I'm just so excited and I'm gonna pray for you is one of my favorite phone calls of the week uh, just some really old guy that looked up our phone number on the internet because we're not in the phone book, so it's incredible that he did that. <laughs> and so, uh, but he he called me up and wanted to let me know he was excited and praying for me because there's this whole room. Do you know who's not talking about it? Heathens. Like my lost friends are not going. It's really interesting that your church is considering an is it an adoption or a merger? And do you serve popcorn? None of my pagan friends care, right? Like, they don't care at all. And we're not trying to reach Christians. We're certainly not trying to impress Christians. We're trying to, we are a group of Christians that are trying to reach the people who don't even care to talk about Jesus. So when we're doing this, there's this, like, stress and anxiety that we feel from criticism from people who we uh, don't put a lot of care into their criticism. That's probably the wrong way to say that. But then on the other hand, I have this terror that it might work. 
I'm sure you're excited that it might work because you'll get to go to a new place, but you haven't been there. <laughs> and there's this terror that if we go to a new place, and this is just me being more honest than I should, we need to figure out a way to raise a very large sums of money. And there's a lot of things like our trustees toured through their building, and there's a lot of things that need to be changed. Like we're going to spend a lot of money before you see anything happen. Does that make sense? Like if you've ever done a big renovation or built a house, you spend like thousands of dollars for pieces of paper and permissions, right? Like, what? There's a terror that goes with that. So next week, they're going to do the vote, and either way, I'm going to have a stress-filled afternoon, right? <laughs> Except, what I want to live, where I want to live, is just past where my skills and my resources are. You know how exciting that is? And it's not that it's not stressful. It's not that it's not, like, it, the disciples weren't happy after Jesus calmed everything. They were terrified. They were genuinely scared. But there are people who go to places and pay money in order to ride things like roller coasters or go to scary movies because when they feel that fear, they feel, they feel most alive. Most alive. There's actually people that engage in like sports where pain is a guarantee because they feel alive. They hike in places and like you guys go for walks with small children in places where there are mountain lions that we didn't have on the East Coast growing up that would just, they, they eat small children. That's what they do. I went for a jog in the woods with a couple of my friends, and I was the slowest of the three. It's nerve-wracking, right? Like, I'm the slowest. But I was also the largest, so I could have took one of them down, and then, then I'm not slowest, right, because one of them is laying there. But, but we do things on a regular basis, and why do we do these things? Because it makes us feel alive. And as we walk into this, the leaders from our church, not just like staff, but like volunteer committees and our leadership council and our trustees, are walking into this, and we walk through their building, and they're like, oh, we need this, we need this, we need this, we need this. And we stand in the parking lot afterwards, and we pray, and they're like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. This has the potential to be awesome. And what is the story that you want your, your life? That was safe. That was stable. That was predictable. Or do you want to be able to say, I didn't know how that was going to go. I didn't know what was going to happen there because they went past where they were able to just on their own and they wanted to see what God was doing. And maybe, maybe God doesn't calm the storm. Maybe your boat does sink. Maybe like Jonah, a whale eats you. <laughs> if you don't know the story, I'm not telling you the end. <laughs> but there is, there is this wondering when we walk out into this when you've got stability and you've got predictable, one of the hardest things in our life is to step into unpredictable. This is why, as a church, we're calling everyone to prayer and fasting because we want to move beyond ourselves. Fasting is something that is difficult, that is beyond your, state, your stable, ordinary, everyday life. Praying is such a way that it's not just like, oh, your daily prayers, but it's like reminded prayer and consistent prayer. So that Jesus can't nap on this because we're waking him up repeatedly during the day. 
Hundreds of people from our church are doing this. And that's what we want to invite you to. If you haven't already, there's a number, and you can text the word adoption in, in your program. There's a number to be able to text that, and you'll get a daily prayer reminder, and you'll be able to pray with us. And then we want to invite you to fast. If you're unfamiliar with that, uh, fasting is going without food. And I don't recommend just stopping. Like, if you've never fasted, don't be like, I'm going to fast for the next week. Don't. Like, that's uh, more than you can handle spiritually. And I know I just preach a thing, go more than you can handle. Don't die, all right? <laughs> but there is, uh, uh, there, like, you can fast for, like, if you've never fasted, try fasting for one day. If you have for one day, maybe do two or three days. If, if you work or you just medically, if that's a, a really unwise idea for you, maybe you fast from something else. Uh, people who are fasting from like the radio in their car, so when they get in their car, they're talking with God while they commute instead of listening to whatever they listen to on the radio. Or fast from your phone. <laughs> or turn off the notifications on something or put it in the other room and then pray. There's all sorts of things that you can fast from because what we're trying to do is increase our sense of desperation to Jesus. When this happens next week, um, they meet later than us, so we won't know next week. Um, we'll find out later. Uh, but when, we, when this happens next week, it actually doesn't affect our relationship with God or the call that God has put on this church or us as individuals. Because God's calling us to actually follow him and go to where he's leading. And where he leads, we'll continue to move forward. It's really just a directional thing. So there's not like a, a win or a loss or a win or a fail in this kind of situation for us as a church. It really is us looking at opportunities that we never, like never ever in one of like our trustee meetings did we ever think we should go and find other churches with building and merge with them. Never. I didn't even know that was a thing. And we talked to our superintendent. We're like, hey, we have this idea and it just kind of happened and it was an idea that was a little past what our skills or abilities could do. So we're going to invite you to do that. We're going to worship together because we have lots of reason to worship together to close our service here today. Uh, but there are real action steps that we need you to take uh, because we don't want this to be something that we can handle. We as a church and as individuals need to move into the space that God is holding on to because we'd rather live there than to live in the space that we can hold on to on ourselves. So let's stand. We'll pray together and then we'll worship. Jesus, our God, uh, we call on you in these moments and uh, putting our lives into your hands. Putting like our church into your hands. And we have like a stable, predictable, safe thing that's going on. We know what we're able to do and what kind of steps we can take and what we can manage. And I pray that you would lead us into the place where we're terrified because you are moving in such a way that it gives evidence to your power and your presence here in us. I pray that for every single person in this room. Some of us are really resistant to that kind of a prayer, really resistant to that kind of a thought. And so I pray you would free us from the things that are holding us back and allow us to become everything that you have for us, to become the kind of people who are equipped and empowered for the mission of God in our families and in our work 
at our schools, on our teams, in our neighborhoods, equipped and empowered for everything that you have for us in our interior lives, in our emotional and mental state. God, we put ourselves in your hands with the expectation uh, that you will show your power in a way that we can't anticipate, that we can't imagine, we can't even ask for, because it's beyond our ability to, to, to do on our own. By your grace we pray. Amen.